You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let me remind us what we're doing here this morning. Last week, if you were here, we looked at how being a disciple of Jesus, which is another way of saying a Christian, right? It's just another way of saying Christian. But being a disciple of Jesus is not just about knowing Christ, but it's about showing him, right? It's not just knowing certain things about him, even knowing him relationally. It's about showing him into the world. But how do we do that? Because for many of us, when I say that we show Christ, what we think of is morality, right? We show Christ through our character, in other words. And that's true, but there's more. We show Jesus to the world through, through our character, certainly. We also show him through our calling, our vocation. Uh, we, we show him through community, how we interact with one another, whether this is a different kind of community than you may find in the rest of the world. But we also show him through mission. And this morning, what we will see is that following in mission is nothing less than a complete reorientation of our lives for the sake of others and for God's glory. So if you have your place in, in uh, the Scriptures, if you stand in honor of God's Word, I'm going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. to 11. And as we do this, let me remind all of us, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here forever, or at least as long as we have, that what we're about to do is a weighty thing because God's Word does not come to us and leave us alone. It changes us. It either shapes us and forms us into the image of Christ or... If, because of our lack of faith, maybe our lack of desire to hear of it, to hear it, it can harden us. And so our call is to receive it with love and with faith. Let's do that now. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drunk, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we just ask for your presence, that you would preach your gospel to us, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, um, drive us deeper in our faith and our repentance. Some of us in this room have never trusted in Christ. Others think we have, but we've really trusted in ourselves. Others of us are struggling to trust in Christ even today, and so we ask, Lord, for your grace in all of our lives to impact us and preach peace to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. 
There are a few moments in our lives that stand out as paradigm shifting, right? Those, those moments in which you know that you've crossed a threshold, there's no going back. Like that moment when you're in your dorm room and the door closes because all of your family that's moved you up there just leaves and suddenly you realize, this is for real? Like, I'm on my own? Nobody's going to wake me up tomorrow. Like, i got to figure this out. Or that moment when you see your bride walking down the aisle and you realize nothing is going to be the same. Or that moment when you go from being a couple to a family. That strange mix of joy and terror that I saw on the faces of two people this week. As you hold that new life that's depending on you. That new life that you will fail. Now what if, on the next day after that moment, we decided these events were all well and good, but we're just going to go back to the way things were? Okay, I know I've got this little kid now, but I'm just going to go be who I was, and you know what? They can take care of themselves. They're okay. You know? You see, those things are identity-shifting moments, and once the identity is shifted, if we seek to go back to the old one, we know something is wrong. And that's pretty much what Peter is talking about this morning. The life of, a, of the Christian has been radically changed, radically altered by the world-changing events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to be his follower, then, is to actually live into that new identity, that new orientation, by following him in mission. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at an old intention. We're going to look at a restored purpose. And then finally, we're going to try and get oriented. You got those? All right, here we go. Let's get started with an old intention by looking at what we are leaving behind. Look down at verses 1 to 4. Peter says this, Just as Christ suffered in the flesh, also you arm yourself with the same attitude, because the one who suffers in the flesh has ceased with sin. Now, I want you to stop there. We, we need to clarify something. First off, we need to remember that this text, what we're reading today, is connected with what Peter said last week. So remember, you and I, we, we read this and we stop, and then we come back to it, and, and sometimes we forget what came before. The original hearers would have heard this Someone literally would just stand up and just start reading it. And they'd be done, they'd sit down, they'd read the whole, the whole letter, okay? So it's connected, and, and folks originally hearing it would understand that it's connected. Peter ended chapter 3 by talking about the culmination of the Christian story. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin once for all, right? Uh, the perfect and faithful one, receiving judgment by God for sin that he did not commit. And he did that in the place of imperfect and faithless people like you and me so that we might be reconciled to God. And then the very last verse in that chapter affirms that this death wasn't the end of the story, but that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended on high, and that he now reigns, that all authority has been given to him. We see that the culmination of God's plan was not only to deal with the guilt of sin, but to end its power. The Bible teaches and Christians believe that Jesus' death was not a tragic side note on the pages of history. It was the culmination of God's plan to see the power of sin and the guilt of it broken in the lives of his creatures, us. And so to that end, Jesus now reigns. Think on that for a minute. Jesus reigns. Maybe I should back up for a minute so we're all on the same page. Because you see, the world as it is now... It's not what it was meant to be. God created it good and placed humanity and creation uh, over it to steward it. And, and stewarding means to, to use something according to the wishes of the one who actually owns it, right? Uh, not just to do your own thing. We, we were created to be the agents of God's rule over creation. 
But we were also created to be in loving, dependent relationship with Him. But we turned from both those things. We didn't like being stewards. We wanted to be God. We wanted to be equal with Him. We wanted to define reality for ourselves. In other words, we wanted to say what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. We didn't want to have someone else telling us that. And so we betrayed Him, and we broke relationship with Him. That's, that's what sin is. It's breaking relationship with another person. It's a betrayal. It's a relational betrayal. And when we did this, of course, we came under guilt, certainly, but we also became bent in on ourselves, entering into the state that the Bible calls sin, or in some places in the New Testament they talk about it in terms of the flesh, which doesn't just mean, like, material existence. It means a way of being that is broken. And this is everyone, everyone on the planet. In other words, the Bible teaches that you and I sin because we're sinners, that we, we do those things because of who we are. We are stuck in our independence from God and in need of a rescuer. That's why Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when he says all, I'm pretty sure he means all. That, that we're all stuck in that state. And that is why Jesus came. So then when I say that Jesus' death and resurrection was God's plan to deal with sin's penalty and its power, what I mean is that when God invades our life and draws us to himself... When we trust in Christ and receive the gift of his work for us by faith, which is thus moving from our independence from God back into dependence with him, our guilt is taken away, but also our lives are reoriented back towards the God that we were made for. And this is what Peter is talking about here. When Peter says that the one who, is suffer, who suffers has ceased from sin, he doesn't mean that if you suffer, somehow it takes care of your sin for you. That would make no sense out of what he just said in the last chapter, okay? And we do believe that one person actually wrote this. So it's not like Peter's kind of contradicting himself. What he means is that someone who chooses to suffer for the sake of being a follower of Christ, not like, you know, running out into oncoming traffic. That's, that's choosing to suffer because you're crazy, not choosing to suffer for Jesus. This means making particular choices that identify you as a follower of Jesus in a world that doesn't like that. But the one who suffers, instead of, of kind of betraying God, shows that they no longer chase after sin. Okay, but there's more. Peter says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. Okay, stay with me. Okay, stay with me. Because I know some of you just heard all that, and you're like, here we go. He's going to start thumping on the pulpit now. Like, just stay with me, okay? Uh, we need to hear this, because Peter is basically saying this. Your identity, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, your identity has shifted. You can't live in the old way anymore. Now, here are the specifics. When Peter talks about Gentiles, we have to understand that what he's talking about is those who aren't followers of Jesus. He's not talking about non, those who aren't ethnic Jews, right? Because that would be the majority of people that he's writing to. That doesn't make any sense. Like what he's writing to is, or what he's saying is basically following the, the normal Jewish way in the first century of looking at the world. There are two kinds of people in the world. People of God and everyone else. And in their lingo, they would say Jews and Gentiles. Peter's affirming the same thing. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. And what he says is that you've done, you've done what they do enough. And then he takes a, a list of examples, okay? Let's look at those examples. That first one that the ESV literally translates as, as, or translates as living in sensuality literally means having a life characterized by sexual excess. Having a life characterized 
by sexual excess. Now, the scriptures teach that God created sexuality good, right? I know some of you have been in church a long time. You're like, that ain't what I've ever been taught. I, I realize that. Some of y'all were brought up thinking that there's this monster out there, and the dude comes out at like 11.30. And if you don't make it in with your doors shut and everyone away, like that monster's going to get you. It's called the sex monster. Okay, that's, that's not true. Like God created sexuality good. Created it good. As a matter of fact, he thinks it's a great thing, but it was designed to be expressed within the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And what Peter is talking about here is a life characterized by misused sexuality, which would be basically any kind of sexual expression outside of marriage, including something that has inundated our culture, pornography. Okay? And next, he strings together three words that, that all mean drinking parties. <laughs> okay? Those three words in, in here, he says, he says um, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Okay? They all kind of mean drinking parties. And so scholars are kind of split. Does, does, is what he's talking about, um, does he mean specific nuances, which is the way the ESV translate would give you different nuances, which they're kind of there, but they all kind of meant the same thing. Or is he just trying to make sure that everyone understands everything that they could possibly call a drinking party so he understands, like, not a good thing, okay? Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing about drinking parties in the first century Roman world. They were often places where sexuality was a little out of control as well. People have a little too much to drink. One thing leads to another. They're hooking up in the corner, right? Now, I know that doesn't happen today, right? Of course, that never happens. But it was true in the first century world. And Peter says, getting drunk and misusing sexuality are both out of line for followers of Jesus. Then, it, then the last thing he talks about is idolatry. Here's why I think he does that. Because not everyone in his audience probably misused their sexuality. Not everyone in his audience was really big with knocking a few back, maybe knocking a few too many back. But everyone in his audience could listen to the idea of idolatry. Here's why. Idolatry is a uniquely Jewish idea. You didn't hear the Romans or, or the Greeks talking about idolatry. Like, that was just... Everything was just kind of normal. But what idolatry meant uh, and means is worshiping something that is not the true God. Now, most of us hear that and we think, okay, I'm safe. I'm good. No, no big deal. Look, look, look where I am. We're fine, okay? Not true, okay? Because you see, worship is not just a religious service. Worship is not just coming to a religious service. Worship is, in fact, um, serving that thing which we think will bring us fullness, will make our lives right. In other words, it is that thing for which we answer the question, my life will be okay if blank. If I just had blank. Okay, that's what that idea is. Now, for some of us, that might be another religion, right? Maybe we're here checking things out and this isn't our normal gig. But for others of us, my guess is that for most of us, it's something more like, like sex or money or acceptance or power or popularity, or security, or success. What we think is that if we have that thing, success, security, power, money, that our life will be worth it. That, friends, is idolatry. And the scriptures say it is sin. It is worshiping a false god. Whether it is misused sexuality, drunkenness, or chasing false saviors, Peter says that we have had enough time to do that. 
And now Peter says uh, that non-Christians around us may be surprised at the fact that we aren't doing the same things. Look down at verses 5 to 6. But then he says that, in fact, everyone will have to give account to the one ready to judge both the living and the dead. Two things on this. First, notice that that, uh, Peter is implying that Christians are around those whose lives are shaped by something different than theirs. Did you catch that? He's implying that your living out of your Christian faith will confuse the people around you, which means that you should be living in and around those who should be confused by your Christian profession. You following me? You understand what I'm saying? Like, you're looking at me like, I don't get it. Let, let me make it clear. Like, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7 assumes that Christians are not to hive themselves off and live in some kind of fortress conclave, but they are supposed to be in non-Christian circles and that those in those circles will probably think you're weird for not doing not just what they're doing, but for what you used to do. Wait a minute. I knew you when you were back there, and you used to do... What do you, do you think you're better than me? Like, that's the kind of thing that is, is supposed to be elicited by this, okay? Second, he says that they will have to give an account. Now, check back in with me if you've checked out, because I know this isn't popular, Okay? Peter is saying that everyone on the planet, everyone on the planet, is answerable to God whether or not they know it. Now, some of us are like, man, that is intolerant, right? How can you, how can you say that? How can you say that everyone is accountable to God even though they don't believe, like, they believe in something else? Like, why are you imposing your belief system on them? Okay, now here's the reality. Every belief system, whether it's atheism, which is a belief system, by the way, atheism, um, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, every, or or Christianity for that matter, matter, all of them make exclusive claims. Like, the reincarnation of Buddhism is not compatible with the final judgment of Islam, is not compatible with the cessation of existence of atheism. I don't realize, those are all exclusive claims. They all say, this will happen and not this. Okay? Even a system that says that only these exclusive claims are wrong is making an exclusive claim. Like, we all do this. All of us. Every one of us including you. But here's the thing. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what Christians believe. That God created everything. And because He created us, we are accountable to Him, whether we believe in Him or not. Because there is an absolute person who does define what good and evil are. And it's not me. It's not you. It's Him. Our willingness to bear the strange looks and claims of being weird, out of touch, or on the wrong side of history is because we know that history is not the judge of the living and the dead. God is. Okay? Now that's all we're to leave behind, but next we find a restored purpose with a new goal. Look down at verses 7 to 8. Peter says this, The end of all things is near. Now I know that when we hear that, we think of some crazy disheveled dude with a sandwich board sitting outside of Lincoln Station, right? The end is near, and he's like, Burlap, where, you know, it's like, that's crazy. What is he talking about? Okay, end for Peter does not mean what it means for us. We think end, and we think like the stopping of everything. The word in, in the original doesn't mean end, it means goal. I mean, it can also mean end. 
insofar as the chief end of man is to glorify God, right? It's our purpose. It's our goal. And that's what, that's what Peter's talking about. It doesn't mean the stopping of the universe. It means the goal to which we are headed. It means the whole point. Because you see, the Bible teaches the goal of God's work, since we plunged ourselves into sin, is not that everything stops. It's not that he blows it all up and we all go strum on harps for eternity. Lord, that would... Like, that's... Come on, guys. Like, I can't believe that. That's boring. Like, that, that is not what God would want for us. It is instead that everything is to return to what He intended. Here's what I mean. When we plunged the world into sin, humanity was broken, and so was creation. And so along with the self-centered life that Peter talked about in the first part of our passage, death also entered the world. And pain and evil, lots of it. Lots of it. When Peter says that the goal is drawing close, what he means is that God's removal of these things is coming. That the restoration is on the way. It is close. And that is why Peter says to be serious or sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, I know that when we hear sober-minded, self-controlled, and serious, we think of, like, stoic people who can't smile. And, but that, that's not what he means. He means taking seriously the reality that this world right now is ruled by Jesus. And that... the that the way of life that we've been in is going to go away. And it means understanding that such activity is under the judgment of God because of our betrayal. And such things will not exist in the new world that God will bring when Christ returns. Being serious and sober-minded means living in light of a reality that we may not be able to see on its face, but have faith in because of the resurrection of Christ that Christ reigns, that He is returning, and that the world that He's bringing is incompatible with the way in which we have lived. And that our goal is then to live into the new one. And that is why Peter says to keep loving one another since it covers over a multitude of sins. And Again, he doesn't mean that you and I take care of our sins by loving. Right? That, that I know I've, I've lived a bad life, but if I love enough, God will, be, God will be happy with me. That's not what Peter said because that doesn't make sense out of the entire rest of the passage. Okay? What he is talking about is what we do when we are sinned against. Our call is to love. And, and by love, what I don't mean is that saccharine sweet thing when we just kind of go, oh, aren't you nice? And we pat people on the head. It, it means, it means uh, seeking the good of another at cost to yourself. That's what love is. And our call is to love in response to being sinned against. And in this way, the, the, the sinful cycles, the, the, the quid pro quo of sin, right? You do this to me, I'm going to do this to you. Like, revenge cycles, they stop. It's not that our, our love covers over a multitude of our sins before God, it's that it covers over a multitude of others' sins so that a new way can be imagined. And the reason for this dovetails into the life that he lays out in verses 9 to 11. Because you see, the whole section lays out a vision for a life that is radically for others. If you look down in that section, the words one another or each other occur three times in verses 8 to 11, right? Four verses, three times this occurs. And they do so to provide an overall idea for the whole section. Each of these things that he's talking about are benefit others. Why? Why do they benefit others? Because, friends, that is the life that you and I were made for, and that is the shape of the world that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to bring. Here's what this means practically as Peter lays it out. We are to be hospitable without grumbling. In other words, be inconvenienced for the sake of others without complaining about it. Be inconvenienced for the sake of others without complaining. And then he says to use the gifts that you've been given as stewards of God's grace 
for the sake of others. All right, brass tacks. Listen, listen close. Scriptures teach that all of life is gratuity. What do I mean by that? I don't mean it's like tips. That's not what I mean. I mean all of life is gratuity. Everything we have is by grace. Now some of you, I say that, and some of you like start to rear up, hair stands up in the back of your neck, you're like, I worked hard for what I have. Yeah, I, I know. And where did that desire to work really hard come from? Where did the advantages that came from being born in the family you were in come from? Or the fact that you're here and not in 7th century Tibet? I'm pretty sure if you were in 7th century Tibet, the best you could hope for is an ox and maybe a, a, to not get snow in your bedroom. You know what I'm saying? What you have has been given to you by God. All of life is gratuity. And if you're a Christian, you have, been, you have gifts that have been given to you by the Spirit of God. But those things, listen to me, those things are not there for you. Peter said this this morning. They're not just there for us to enjoy. They're there for others. The life we used to live was characterized by self-indulgent expression. But if you're a Christian, your life is now turned right side out. You've been turned right side out. You were to use all that you have for, the, for others as a steward. And remember, like what I said earlier about steward, let me fill it in. Like that's not language we use often. Um, in the ancient world, a steward was someone, if you were a, if you were a landowner, if you, had, if you owned a house, okay, which would probably be about two of us in here, honestly, uh, in the way the ancient world was. Um, if you owned a house, you probably owned more than one. You probably owned one in the city in which you lived and one somewhere else that you would go and you'd vacation at or, or winter at, okay? Because you don't want to winter in cold climates. You're not gonna, it's not going to go well. They don't have pills. You know what I mean? So you would go, but while you were gone, you'd leave a servant in charge. And they were a steward. And they weren't to govern that house, that property, the way they would want to. They govern it the way you would want to do it. Why? It's yours. It's not theirs. That's what Peter's talking about here. God gave you gifts. He gave you the life in which you live. He gave you the resources He gave you to bless those around you, not to make you feel good. We do this, friends, because this is what Christ did. He poured His life out for the sake of others. And we follow Him by doing the same. We follow Him in mission for the flourishing of others. Okay? Now let me apply these, these things if I can, really quick. Okay? Let's, let's talk about getting oriented to... And first, let's look at the shape of our life. Let me be frank. Some of us in this room think we can do what we want on Saturday as long as we make it in here on Sunday. Right? Look, um, our, our um, I'm going to embarrass him, our, our pastoral intern wrote a book. I don't know if you know this. Chris Lasser is published. He's got a book. It's on Amazon. Look it up. It's great. Um, and the, the entire shape of that book was talking about how... Like, you, can't come in with, with the cross around your neck, with the, the Jesus tattooed on your arm, and that mean nothing. Right? It, some of us think that, that we can indulge our sexuality however we want. That we can get sloppy drunk as much as we want, and even chase after the idols of success. The idols of being a good girl, or, or of money, and of power. And then show up in church, or have our name on a church roll, and, and that somehow everything's cool. Right? They're like, look, you don't understand, dude. I, I got the fish on the back of my car. It's there. I'm like, yeah, I know. You know how bad a name for Jesus you give when, when you cut people off with that thing on the back of your car? Like, you can't walk around with a cross around your neck and think that everything's okay. You can't. Like, 
You can't be Jay-Z during the week and think that that has nothing to do with your Christianity on Sunday. Let me get specific where Peter gets specific. Sexuality. A life shaped by the grace of God will see sexuality as being used not for selfishness, but for the sake of your spouse. Not for you, but for your spouse. And let me be clear, as someone who is as human as you are, and as broken as you are, sexuality outside of marriage, whether that is pornography or hooking up or having friends with benefits or adultery or what have you, it is incompatible with Christian belief. And it is damaging to others and to yourself. Drinking. Okay, he talks about drinking. Look, drunkenness is a sin. And I don't mean just in public. I mean period. It's a sin. Now, I didn't say drinking. I said drunkenness. Don't overreach because you're trying to defend yourself from what I'm saying. Okay? Some of you in this room drink too much. Honestly. And if you're feeling defensive right now, it's probably you. Okay? We're to depend on Christ and the Spirit, not Jim Beam and Sam Adams to help make our life worthwhile. Okay? Idolatry. Guys, I want to speak to you for a second. Men. Men, success and power cannot fill you. It cannot fill you. You cannot worship those things and Jesus. Stop fooling yourself. Being somebody will not make you right. Being able to tell that person in the past who told you you weren't worth it, that they were wrong, will not make you right. Living in such a way that you prove that everyone was either right about you or wrong about you cannot make you right. What we are doing when we act like this is living as if God does not exist, as if He is not an authority. In other words, we're functional atheists. My guess is is that that's like most of us in this room. A life bent in on itself, characterized by self-centeredness and self-indulgence, is a life that has not been transformed by Christ. Let me say that again, because I want to make sure you hear that. A life that is bent in on itself, that is characterized by self-centeredness and self-indulgence, is a life that has not been transformed by Christ. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Being reconciled to God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that grace changes you. And if it, if it isn't, you need to ask yourself a question, am I trusting in Christ or am I just being presumptuous? Okay? But now if we stop there, we're lost, right? Because what Peter talks about here is not just stop doing something. He says to start doing something. And one of the starting, startlingly, amazingly, frighteningly hopeful aspects of the gospel is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restores us to what we were made for, a life for others and for God's glory. And when Peter talks about that in this passage, he talks about it in two ways. He talks about speaking and serving. Did you notice that? He talks about word and deed. And so, so will I. When we say mission, what we mean is following Jesus into the world to see his kingdom advance. And that is done through word and through deed, through speaking and through serving. By word, what I mean is actually taking the message of the gospel to your friends and neighbors. Like, actually taking the message of the gospel to your friends and neighbors. 
like actually speaking to them. By deed, what I mean is pouring out your life to see them flourish physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We do this through the gifts, abilities, and the life situations we've been given. Okay, now, listen, friends. This is what you and I were made for. God did not just save us from something. He saved us for something. It wasn't just from the way that we were, but for another way of being altogether. Throughout Scripture, God's calls always comes with an incredible privilege. I mean, I mean, are you serious? Like, I am a grade A sinner. And I am not just saying that. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Like, yeah. I am a grade A sinner. Like, I, this week, I, I wounded my wife with my words this past week because, quite frankly, I am a selfish and cowardly person. There's no other way to describe it. And yet, God in His grace looks on me with love. And He came in Jesus to die to reconcile me to Himself. And now, He calls me son. Are you serious? If you don't think that's amazing, you ain't breathing. Or you're not listening. I, I have done nothing but betray him. You have done nothing but betray him. And yet he loves me. He loves you and he dies for us. But God's call also comes with a responsibility. Because I am now called God's son, I am sent to be like my father in the world. Seeking to see other sinners receive what I have received. To see others flourish as I have flourished. Let me be clear. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not on mission. Now, I did not say who's not, who, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't go overseas. I know that's what we think when we think mission. We think, I've got to move to Africa. Like, I've got to move to Philippines. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, mission It means you are trusting in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ, you have been sent by Him into your neighborhood. Kids, you have been sent into your school, your workplace, your family to see His kingdom advance and to see those people flourish. Now let me conclude. All this is for His glory. Now that word is churchy, right? Glory. Like, I don't even... Glory. Like, I don't know what, exactly what that means. It's like it's supposed to be a response, right? Some pastor says something good, and we're like, glory. I know we don't. We're Presbyterians. We don't do that. Okay, but... Okay, but... We... This is what we do for glory. We go... Mm. <laughs> if it's really good, we're like... Mm. Okay? Uh, we need a little more glory in this room, by the way. Okay, so anyway, here, here's the thing. Glory is a churchy word. But in the original, okay, both in the, in the Greek and originally in the Hebrew, where it's translated from, it means weighty, heavy. It means to give something weight. We would say, we would say um, in terms of persons, we would say famous. Glory is, is being famous. You are weighty. When we give God glory, let me, let me be clear, we are not making Him weighty. We are not making him important. We, God does not need us to make him feel important. That's us, right? We need other people to make us feel important. Okay, that's not, that's not God. God is already weighty and important. Giving God glory means acknowledging him as such. Because here's the reality. As the world watches a community of people transformed from what we are by nature, self-centered sinners, to other-centered, self-forgetful people, they will be forced to draw the conclusion that the only way 
such an incredible thing could happen is by the power of God. And even then, they will give him glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, over the course of these things, we ask that you would be present with us, that you would speak to us. For many of us, Lord, we are in need of your grace because we do live Monday through Saturday as if you do not exist, and we need your grace. We need your grace to touch us. Some of us in this room have, have never been touched by that grace, and so I pray right now for my friends here that you would invade their lives, that you would make their hearts new, and that with, with that new heart they would trust in Christ as their only hope. For the rest of us, Lord, would you help us to trust in him again and repent of those ways in which we are not being self-forgetful. Start with me right behind this little lectern, Lord, and let it go to all of us. We need you. And so we ask that you would do all these things for the sake of your name, that you would be made famous in the city of Stanton. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.